welcome back to Conversations in Anthropology, a podcast about life, the universe, and anthropology. Each episode of this show, we sit down with scholars and thinkers whose work excites us to talk about their research and what anthropology has to tell us in the 21st century. Our episodes have tended to swing between two approaches to anthropology. So on the one hand, we imagine it as a specific academic discipline with specific histories and methods. And then on the other hand, we sometimes try to think about anthropology from adjacent to it, as part of the effort we all make to account for our shared human potential. That is our collective inheritance, for better or worse. For this episode, that meant bringing together a cross-section of voices to explore questions that are anthropological in scale to do with race and racism. We're talking about whiteness, white supremacy, and white nationalist movements, whose visibility and numbers have disturbingly grown steadily in recent years. We learn from this episode's interviewees a bit about how and why that is. David Porter-Giles, who produced this episode, brought together four historians and anthropologists who've been writing about white nationalism in different ways with respect to North America and Europe. Our first guest, Kathleen Ballou, is an assistant professor of history at the University of Chicago. Her book, Bring the War Home, The White Power Movements in the Paramilitary America, explores the recent history of white nationalist movements and organizing in the years between the Vietnam War and the Oklahoma City bombing. Our second guest, Alexandra Minister, is the Carol Smith Rosenberg Collegiate Professor of History, American Culture, and Women's and Gender Studies at the University of Michigan, whose work has investigated the intersections of eugenics, racism, and gender in American politics. Her most recent book is Proud Boys in the White Ethnostate, How the Alt-Right is Warping the American Imagination. Our third guest, Britt Halverson, is an assistant professor of anthropology at Colby College. Her most recent work, co-authored with our fourth guest, has turned to investigate the ways in which whiteness and white supremacy are embedded in narratives of Midwestern identity and placemaking. Their forthcoming book is provisionally titled Real Americans, A Global History of the Midwest and White Supremacy. And our fourth guest, Joshua Reno, is an associate professor at Binghamton University and is the co-author with Brit of Real Americans. Like Brit, his other research has often contributed to discard studies, investigating the entangled relationship between waste and technological innovation and intractable social problems. Over now to David, Alexandra, Kathleen, Joshua, and Brit. So thanks for being here, first of all. Thank you. We often start off with a sort of icebreaker, which is to try and map out our you know, as scholars and as thinking people with with interests to try and map out our pathway to the subjects we've chosen. And, you know, often we frame that as a kind of personal, what brought you to anthropology or what brought you to history. But I thought today, actually, uh, I wanted to ask, you know, sitting in a room with four other white people who've chosen to, uh, to study whiteness, white supremacy, race and racism, and especially given that for many of us, you know, we have the privilege not to feel directly threatened by these issues, and it could have been easy to ignore uh, if we'd so chosen. I wanted to ask you each what uh, what put this on your radar, and what brought you to what brought you to the subject. I can start. Um, this is Alex. I use the pronoun she/her, and I'm really happy to be here. 
in this conversation, even though we're tackling challenging and disturbing topics. In any case, what brought me to this studying whiteness and white nationalism and specifically writing the book that was published pretty recently, Proud Boys in the White Ethnostate, was really my interest in the long history of eugenics in the United States and understanding uh, the pervasive effects of demographic anxieties on exclusionary and toxic social movements. So in general, that was the broad framing. At the same time, in the summer and fall of 2016, my university, and I know that we have some alums here too who know the Mason Hall and Haven Hall, you probably spent some time there. In 2016, those buildings were plastered with white supremacist flyers and posters, including from Identity Europa and like well-trod stereotypes of Black men having low IQs and interracial unions being problematic. And those started appearing around the University of Michigan. And so it really hit close to home. And at that time, I was chairing the Department of American Culture, which is the department that houses our ethnic studies units, including Latinx studies and Asian Pacific Islander American studies. And so obviously this was really an assault on our sense of self and community. And so kind of those pieces intersected in my mind and prompted me to go down many rabbit holes from which I have not currently escaped um, and continue to explore. This is Kathleen. Early in my graduate training as an American studies scholar, I read a lot of books about I mean, I read Alex's book actually very pivotally early in graduate school um, and a lot of other books about sort of the long legacies of racial injustice and racial violence in the making of the United States, particularly in the recent past. But of course, you know, this is a history that stretches back and back. And I, I wanted to do something about truth and reconciliation, because one thing that stood out to me is that although the United States is, of course, not unique in having a history of racial inequality and racial violence, we are somewhat unique in the comparative lack of major collective meaning-making activities around that history, which is to say we have not had a National Truth and Reconciliation Commission. We've had very little in the way of national museum-making. This was in 2005, so this is before the lynching memorial opened in Montgomery, Alabama, and also before the African American History Museum opened um, on the mall in D.C., And so I got drawn to this local upstart truth commission that was happening in Greensboro, North Carolina, about an event that happened there in 1979, when a group of neo-Nazi and Klan activists opened fire on a leftist protest and killed five people and then were acquitted several times over. And so there was this effort to figure out what had happened. And significantly, this this Truth Commission had no government buy-in. It had no subpoena power. It had no punitive capacity. But people from both sides of the politics showed up to talk about what that event had meant to them over the last decades. And the people that had been involved in the Klan and neo-Nazi groups kept saying something over and over that I couldn't stop thinking about. And it was some version of, well... We killed communists in Vietnam, so why wouldn't we kill communists here? And I just, I couldn't stop thinking about that statement that collapses wartime and peacetime. Um, It collapses home front and battle. It collapses a whole bunch of different kinds of enemies into one 
sort of extinguishable category of communism. And as I thought about it and followed that idea into the paper archive, which turned out to be much more extensive than I thought it might be, what I found was a social movement that employed this idea in a really fascinatingly, I mean, not uniform way, but in a really percussive way. Um, And the surprise to me was that this was a social movement of men and women and children of people in all parts of the country. It stretched across class. It stretched across different kinds of belief systems, different kinds of social backgrounds, different kinds of economic backgrounds. And that really turned into the book. I want to come back to some of those questions uh, as we go on, you know, the question of the relationship between militarism, you know, the long relationship between militarism and whiteness. You've already given us a lot to chew on there. Britt and Josh, and I know that this is a, a recent development in your scholarship. So how did you come to whiteness in the Midwest? Hi, this is Britt. So nice to be here. Thank you for bringing us all together for this conversation. So Josh and I, actually, we were both graduate students at the University of Michigan, and we were both in anthropology, but we were also affiliated with the Center for the Ethnography of Everyday Life, which was a research center that was specifically focused on doing critical ethnography and history of the Midwest. And it was an interdisciplinary center, and we both went on to do different ethnographic projects that were also transnational in scope. And so I went on to do work both in the Midwest and in Madagascar, looking at transnational Christian aid programs and their their complexities and politics and their histories. But I think a lot of the conversations that we had as affiliates of that research center were really about these sort of deep and enduring uh, mythologies of the Midwest, of insularity, of whiteness, of masculinity, of labor, of industrialization, you know, as a form of racial capitalism. And we kept circling through many of those narratives. And we were also in many ways working against them, I think, in in our research projects and critically engaging with imperial histories as they were being, you know, kind of experienced in and through places that would be labeled Midwestern. But so more recently, um, that conversation has continued um, as we've gone on to do other things. And Closer to 2016, around the time of the election of Donald Trump, we were both noticing a surge of public discourses and narratives about the Midwest and whiteness, or about the Midwest that were also really about articulating whiteness in a particular way that felt very deeply historical to us, but that we were seeing a kind of resurgence of in the public sphere. And so that really prompted us to revisit some of that earlier reading and deeper historical work that we had been doing on the history of the Midwest, on on issues surrounding the politics of white settlement in the region, and really of how the Midwest had become a kind of icon and a dominant space for articulating some of those histories of white labor and industry, and both of white virtue and white deplorability. And so that really reignited our interest in doing something that was a more publicly accessible work that would critically visit all the ways that those narratives kind of hide in plain sight and get articulated through ideas of the Midwest. Yeah, and I think that Britt said all that quite well. This is Josh, uh, he, him pronouns. You know, one way to distinguish and relate, I think, our work, uh, what we're trying to do with our book and the amazing work that our uh, colleagues on this show have done and are doing is that they, on the one hand there are a small number of people relatively speaking thankfully who joined a say white power movement or a nazi movement on the other hand there's a huge number of people i think something like this is an estimate something like 70 percent 
of uh, white Americans don't support Black Lives Matter, if you ask them, right? Um, that number fluctuates, but that's a huge number of people, most of whom wouldn't say that they are, you know, a part of the far right. So the question, in a way, is like what moves people, whether or not they join a movement, to have certain racial conceptions about whiteness. And what we found is, bizarrely, different Midwest tropes, things we don't often you know, put forward as, as being particularly you know, fascist or, <laughs> or disturbing uh, in terms of racial politics, have this kind of banal sense of, of good old-fashioned virtuous whiteness, like Clark Kent being raised in Kansas or Dorothy Gale being in Kansas or certain sorts of images of bucolic cornfields that are used in Super Bowl commercials that say something about a middle America and real America, that these are not directly necessarily racially charged, but they are in a, in a very kind of banal everyday sense part of the sort of imaginary of race in America. Um, I want to come back and ask you all for the listeners who haven't necessarily thought of very much length about the relationship between whiteness, white supremacy, and white nationalism. I want to come back to that question uh, and ask how you think about that relationship. But I also wanted to ask each of you, because we have an interdisciplinary group today, I want to ask each of you how you think about the relationship between your discipline and the subject. You know, I know in anthropology, in an earlier era of anthropology, we were, uh, you know, and I think we're, some of us are rightly proud of this, we were blacklisted, uh, watched by the, you know, the McCarthy types, because anthropologists were understood to be uh, actively anti-racist, or at least some of us were actively contesting the logic of racial science and the logic of white supremacy, you know, in the 20s, 30s and 40s. I don't know if we could say that about our discipline as a whole. I don't know if the CIA keeps tabs on us anymore, sadly. <laughs> but, so I wanted to ask you about where, where your work falls within your discipline and what you think your disciplines bring to the question. I'm glad to weigh in. This is Britt. I think what you've just described is really important to recognize the, the history and legacy of anti-racist work in anthropology and the protest traditions of the teach-in and of sort of questioning American empire and its articulation with white supremacy. At the same time, I think that there's a really deep and enduring tension and a different legacy, and there are many legacies, but a different legacy of the kind of historical uneasy alliance between anthropology and, and colonization. And I think out of that comes a different kind of white gaze that is still present in different ways in terms of the kinds of questions that are the dominant questions to ask what seems legitimately anthropological, the field sites and areas of study that people choose to have. And so that's one thing that I've thought quite a bit about as someone who has transnational research, both in the Midwest United States and in Madagascar, and of which of those areas has seemed more legitimately anthropological. And so that's one of the interesting questions that Josh and I think have been grappling with through this book is thinking about how to challenge some of that area studies legacy and some of the sort of complicity of that with anthropology and its history in thinking about casting a really important critical gaze on the Midwest as a kind of enduring site of white nationalism in US history and of how important that is for decolonizing anthropology in terms of what sites seem appropriate for applying anthropological research methods. Josh, I'm not sure if you wanna add anything to that since we're on anthropology first. <laughs> um, well, I, I guess I would say I'd be curious of what Alex and Kathleen would have to say from a perspective of you know, outside of anthropology, not about anthropology, but their own disciplinary complicities, if you like, because I think sometimes anthropologists 
own that sort of complicity with forms of power and almost over overperform. I don't think we're doing that right now, but I think that 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 can make us think that our discipline is uniquely complicit and uniquely problematic in perhaps some of the ways it's had a relationship with colonialism, uh, with racism. You know, in the same way on the other side of the coin that we've uniquely contributed to anti-racism and to sort of battling those things. So um, I don't know if in history, for example, there's a similar sense of ambivalence about the, the dual-sided nature of our, our disciplinary uh, engagements, but I suspect that anthropologists aren't alone in this. I'm not sure I'm a very good disciplinarian. My undergrad degree is not in history. My graduate training is not in history. I've become more and more of a historian being uh, in the history departments and working among historians and training historians. And I think like all disciplines, it's sort of it giveth and it taketh away, right? Like I think it it has an enormous amount of capacity for public good and it also has capacity for distortion and misuse. And I'm not sure if I feel qualified to resolve all that for us here. I guess for myself, I think of myself as a historian of the present. And I I think of that, you know, not only in sort of the Foucauldian sense of finding a genealogy for how did we get to where we are, but also in the in the Lisa Lowe sense of history helps us to slow down the volume of events we're witnessing to contextualize and create more complex stories and maybe to locate some paths forward that we wouldn't otherwise be able to find. So I think that's where I locate my own praxis. I mean, to add to that, I feel very similarly to Kathleen that I am a, I'm in a kind of iconoclast and my work has, yes, my first two books in particular the narratives were constructed out of archives and paper archives and going to sites and well, even way back when photocopying documents, later digitizing documents. And, you know, I think history has some real basic strengths, which is showing change over time, digging into archival materials, doing multi-sided archival research to reconstruct a multifaceted past uncovering and bringing to the fore forgotten historical actors and those who have been marginalized. And there's excellent work being done by historians along all those lines. And when I think of historians who are really rising up to the challenge of the moment and, you know, kind of the racial violence that we're living through, I think of people like Erica Lee, who is running um, the Immigration History Research Center at University of Minnesota and working in collectively with colleagues on basically a meticulous analysis of the thousands of changes to immigration law and policy enacted by Trump, which by the way, will be very hard to overturn with even a thousand you know, counteracting executive orders from the Biden administration and critically looking at what is going on with the Biden administration. One similarity with anthropology is that historians, many historians like to view themselves as good guys and girls, liberal actors, but that liberalism itself has perpetuated racism in some instances, in many instances has perpetuated whiteness and has perpetuated dominant narratives that we really need to contest. And so I always like to say we can't let liberalism off the hook in academic spaces, and we need to be critical in that regard. The final thing I'll say is that 
you know, one of the things that I have been learning along the way, especially the past, you know, five years plus, and I guess now even more in the COVID era, is, you know, studying with, if we look at contemporary white nationalism, so much of what's happening in terms of the ideologies and the kind of cultural repertoire that exists is happening on social media. So you have to really, I have learned so much from my colleagues in media studies and in digital studies who have taught me about understanding, memeing, understanding distributed networks and, you know, the ways in which they function as both ephemeral and incredibly pervasive and dangerous spaces. So, you know, I've always find that history is typically best enhanced by bringing in other lenses and other disciplines that will bring that critical edge if it's not already there. The next question that was on my list was going to be, you know, if you could tell us a little bit about what you think we're getting wrong about white nationalism, white supremacy, uh, you know, and the movements attached to them. And, you know, by we, I mean, seemingly progressive, open-minded, our colleagues, you know, the people who are likely to listen to this podcast, you already have an interest in the probably what they would consider fairly progressive values. We're already interested in studying the human. What are we getting wrong about it? And so I was interested to hear about you, the people who are failing to let liberalism off the hook. Well, I'll jump in again, because I feel like talking about hooks and kind of frames that are being employed over and over again. Now, some of this is coming out of journalism and in the media, which is there are journalists who are doing fantastic work on all of this and are digging in deep and are being really kind of ethical and super conscientious in the way they're doing this work. So I really appreciate that. At the same time, you know, what I find over and over is there is a kind of a troublesome fascination with certain figures on the far right and white nationalism to the point where they are romanticized and amplified and given the oxygen that they shouldn't be given. And also just this framing over and over again of extremism. So it's not that extremism isn't happening or that it can be a helpful frame, but when that becomes the dominant frame, we begin to lose an understanding of the way in which especially the contemporary far right has been so mainstreamed and so normalized that we don't even see it. And that's where I'm particularly interested in that kind of erosion zone, we can call it, between the fringe and the you know extremist edges and what we see in more mainstream from center right you know, into kind of the more liberal side of the spectrum. And so one way where I think we can see this is in the intense transphobia that permeates the U.S. and many other cultures, which I say over and over again that you can't understand the contemporary far right. You can't understand anti-Semitism, for example, today without really digging into transphobia, which has everything to do with anxieties over essentialisms and certain types of categoricals and fears of certain types of bodies and all of that. And so it's hard. It is really hard like to how has the far right been mainstreamed? Where do we see that? Where do we see that in culture? Where do we see that in discourse? Where do we see that in memes? It's very hard to track. It's a, you know, it's a many, many wily tentacles that are out there. But nonetheless, I really feel like that's important work and 
the extremism framing, the framing that is perpetuated over and over again in the media coverage. And I'm looking at stories every day, some of which are really good. They're doing good work, but they nonetheless are perpetuating that framing. And so I think that is counterproductive, at least in some important ways. Uh, yes, to all of that, I cosign all of that. And I, I think I would add that part of the issue that I see over and over for academics, especially, is that people aren't talking to each other the way that we really need to, to understand a movement like this. So it's exactly this, right? Like people who study immigration and anti-immigrant violence sometimes aren't in the same conference panel as somebody who's studying anti-trans attacks or um, anti-Black attacks. And we get these compartmentalizations of response in the academy that really mirror what we see in the press when we talk about quote unquote lone wolf attacks, even when they are connected and ideologically motivated. There are areas where we just don't have very much work. And that intersection of what we call fringe and what we call mainstream, I think, is one of the biggest lacuna that we're facing because we just, mm. at least in the historical literature, we just don't have very much information and data and studying about that particular intersection. And we need to be talking to anthropologists and sociologists and media studies folks to fill in those gaps. And the other thing I'll say for my own discipline is I think a lot of people are still very uncomfortable with the idea of, you know, historians, we love to periodize things. We really like to argue about the beginnings and endings of stuff and the dates that we ascribe to those. And along with that, we sometimes get into a thing about how recent can something be to be called history? Is there a distance of remove that has to be required in order for us to do our job? And I think I'm just going to guess that Alex and I maybe bristle at some of those rules based on um, her last book and my last book, but at our peril, we don't start writing the history of the 90s and the history of the early 2000s because these movements are not going to wait to act for us to get our knowledge together. And I think in all of these cases, there are urgent, urgent ticking clocks on writing some of it. I mean, they're shredding court cases right now from the late 80s and early 90s that we could use, that we need. And the longer we wait, the less information there will be, right? So I think part of it is just the urgency of study and the urgency of getting into it. And I, I suppose my hesitation about your question, David, is partly because for me, I think a more concerning thing is not so much the getting wrong problem as the lack of jumping in. I mean, I think we just need lots more attention really fast. We need granting resources. We need students getting in there and, and really getting into these issues. Yeah, I really like what uh, what everyone's been saying. But yeah, I really like to say from Kathleen about the problem not being what people are getting wrong. The problem seems to be people are worried about getting things wrong, so they don't get involved or they don't contribute to debates and conversations. And you know, uh, this is—it's not. You've mentioned that we're a bunch of white people talking about these things. I think that that's at least part of what's going on. Is that it's part of a broadly liberal with a big L culture in academia that tends to kind of go along with assumptions about and performances of whiteness and white space that also create a kind of a politeness and a in ignoring and a moving away from difficult issues or complicated questions. And that's exactly what uh, these issues are. They can all be overwhelming and it can be really somewhat traumatic to do this kind of research, I think, uh, and troublesome. So that perhaps accounts for it too. We've been thinking very much along these lines of what are the tracks and circuits and spaces of interconnection between 
forms of far-right white power movements and white extremism and the sort of mainstreaming of white supremacy. And I think that raises some really interesting questions. And we've taken a lot of inspiration from the work of, you know, the other two guests that we're in conversation Mm -hmm. with today in thinking about those issues. And really, I think it raises the deep question of sort of what is, and maybe even more, what isn't a white nationalist form in um, settler colonial contexts like the United States looking more deeply into the sort of public imagery of really white democracy, of sort of the basis of power of organization of sort of deep narratives of especially white economic and political interests. You know, I think it's important to keep an eye on the idea that, you know, whiteness and its many different manifestations is never simply about an identity claim alone, but it's always about articulating and controlling economic and political resources in you know, maybe sometimes non-obvious, but then in other times deeply obvious ways. And so finding those tracks and circuits where, you know, we're all swimming in and steeped in white nationalist narratives, but then sometimes those get taken up and serve more violent and extremist forms of white power. And tracking those movements is really important. All of us here have been making already sort of some of these large, deep historical connections. You know, we're not talking about the way some even, you know, relatively well-informed relatively well-meaning people have responded as if this is a recent sudden phenomenon just because it's just come onto their radar. For the benefit of some of those people, uh, I wonder if you could give a uh, an even more schematic answer to the question, what is whiteness, what is white supremacy, what is white nationalism, and how are they related before we get into some of the thornier questions? This is Kathleen. I, I just taught this yesterday, so I'm, it is fresh. So some common definitions that I invite others to fiddle with. I think whiteness is a socially constructed category that is historically contingent and means dramatically different things from time to time and place to place and is always attached, um, as Britt just pointed out, to economic and political power or resources and is enforced along gender lines. I think white supremacy is the broad melange of interpersonal beliefs, personal beliefs, and systems that continue to propagate racial inequality, even when those systems are not housed by people who have racist beliefs. So in other words, the fact that a hospital in the United States is more likely to be fatal to a Black woman than to a white woman, even if none of the personnel working that day would say that they are themselves racist is an example of one system of white supremacy. We could look at incarceration or maternal health rates or wealth disparity or housing. There's all kinds of litmuses. And then within white supremacy, we also have individual belief systems, including people who are racist and say they are, people who are racist and don't say they are. Um, And then among overt racists, we have a subsection of people who would like either white nationalism of the stripe that would be claiming America is a white nation and should be peopled by whiteness and white culture, and then a part of white nationalism that is looking for a white homeland or ethnostate that has nothing to do with the United States. And in that second category lives the white power movement, at least in the period of my study. So we're talking about a subsection of a subsection of a subsection of white supremacy. So one thing that I think we often get wrong is to 
think of, you know, I'm interested in the violent white power movement. I think many people are interested in the violent white power movement. It has real capacity for harm, but it is not the source of the most fatalities per year by white supremacy. It is not the source of the biggest or most broad reaching problems. So I think we have to balance our analysis of all of these things when we're thinking more systematically. That's pretty comprehensive. Thank you. You've all taken quite an intersectional approach to it. So whiteness is not only whiteness, it is also always gendered, it's also always classed, and it's always old in the sense that it's contiguous with these longer, deeper trends. But also the next question I was going to ask is in what way is it new? Well, since I'm unmuted, I'll just go ahead and (laughs) speak. I was going to follow up on a point from before, but I would say that, you know, there is this question, is this like old wine and new bottles It's definitely really super old wine, centuries old wine, nasty wine of white supremacy that has been repackaged. And it is a luxury for anyone to say that there's been a resurgence of white supremacy or white nationalism because it's been around since the originary throes of the making of this this country, right? And so we recognize that in the longer history At the same time, thinking about 21st century white nationalism, I'd say there's a few things about it that are different or inflected by the contemporary context. One is the role of, as I've said before, social media as the kind of contested public square, the not very regulated, although some people think it is regulated public square, and just the way in which that has become you know, kind of the space for the building of these networks and the exchange of these ideas, not just in a transactional sense, but in an effective sense that people are getting, you know, some white people are getting turned on to images of Midwestern white nostalgia through memes they're seeing on Twitter or Gab. So that is doing that kind of work. At the same time, I mentioned earlier on that One of the reasons I decided to do this most recent work was really, you know, thinking about the ways in which the eugenicists of the early 20th century were being celebrated and repackaged by white nationalists today. So there's a love affair with Madison Grant and Lothrop Stoddard and others who were writing these very popular books in the early 20th century when whiteness meant a different collection of socially constructed categories than it does today, but the demographic anxieties are similarly driving these types of concerns. And so I would say, you know, one of the context specific aspects of our current moment is the absolute fixation of white nationalists on census projections on 2045, on, you know, that day, you know, which for them is like doomsday, when we will cease to be a white majority nation and the country will go the way of California, you know, which is kind of their worst nightmare. And so I would say that that again and again, if you're going to look at kind of a flashpoint for understanding white nationalism, you've got to look at demography and the way in which that's taken up. So kind of demography, social media, and also the ideas of like, territoriality and where do people belong, it is interesting that at least a subset, you know, the subsection of a subsection of white nationalists like to portray themselves as 
more compassionate and more rational because of, you know, believing in this idea of a, an ethnostate. According to their biodiversity plan, every race should have their own ethnostate and every race will be happy in their own white ethnostate where they have 90% of their quote unquote race, which is much better than, you know, a colonial regime or what happened in South Africa, you know, and that is a recruitment tool for them. Like we just want rights for white people, just like you know, white pride, black pride. I mean, they use all the, those logics. So I think the distortion and the appropriation of their idea of what identity politics is, is something that is part of the contemporary dynamic, at least how it is articulated and discursively presented, if that makes sense. If I could just add one, one thing there, I, I think it's important to mention is that and again, this goes back to Du Bois and the observations he was making in the early 20th century, but the idea that it's purely demographic, right? Even the notion that it's just increasing numbers of, say, people of color already is robbing, is sort of denying agency of, for example, anti-colonial, anti-racist activists and social movements who pushed agendas and pushed progressive projects forward that were kind of what the reaction of white pride and, and white desperation and white panic was sort of articulated against. So that, you know, making it simply a matter of numbers growing takes away the notion of people struggling, fighting and succeeding to like overthrow colonial governments or to, you know, fight Jim Crow or whatever. And so those sorts of activists are a part of this history too that get denied when white uh, nationalists tell the story of, of the country and tell the story of what scares them. Um, they actually refuse that additional social action on the part of the people that terrify them. I would just add to that too, that question of what's old and what's new. For us, it's been really interesting when we think about deindustrialization, because I think deindustrialization in the Midwest or as it gets attached to the Midwest as a phenomenon or as a space of affective loss is, you know, very much bringing forward a lot of those very questions because it's linked to particular kind of racial capitalism of industrialism. So industrialism and all of the different ways that it was racialized, at least in many popular depictions, gets hidden. And so if you think about industrialization as a, a kind of project of a certain kind of social reproduction of whiteness, of white spoils and entitlements to labor and kind of prestigious jobs, it's interesting to think about now with sort of the economic downturn in some communities associated with deindustrialization, how that gets both those maybe sometimes hidden, but other times completely explicit forms of entitlement get articulated in a new way in the public sphere because they're being rescinded or they're being lost. The other part of that that I think is interesting to think about is the connection to neoliberalism, because that's in many ways accelerated some of those experiences of loss, dismantled, you know, labor unions or unionizing. It's also, you know, rescinded certain kinds of public services and public support. So looking, I think, at the intersection between those two has been a space through which to think about those questions of sort of how are maybe older forms of whiteness associated with industrialism getting reworked as kind of spaces in which to articulate that effect of loss associated with deindustrialization. Along those lines too, I, when I see white nationalist movements growing, and also, I know you've all in various ways just made the connection to sort of American populism more generally. When I see sort of populist and nationalist movements growing around the world, 
you know, there are clearly resonances. You know, Arjuna Paderai made this argument in 2006, which I think maybe is just in the water now that these kind of burgeoning populisms in India, in Brazil, in the United States, in the UK, all, all grow out of um, a shared relationship to neoliberal globalization, which exactly as you say, erodes the entitlements of majoritarian citizenship. In the case of the United States, erodes the wages of whiteness to some extent. How do the white nationalisms that you all have studied, how do those track that broader global surge of populism? Or are there ways in which they're distinctive? One thing that strikes me as a thing to ask about is the the tension between the sort of localism and the globalism in white nationalist movements. You know, on the one hand, they're nationalist. Uh, and on the other hand, they're intensely global. And I know, Alexandra, you've written a bit about the kind of the global dimensions of it. Do these track that tendency towards localism, protectionism that Apatero was talking about and the sort of this kind of global surge of populist rejections of globalism and neoliberal globalization? Well, you mentioned my name. I don't know if I have a generalized sweeping answer to that. You know, as you were talking, I was thinking about a really apt example of this, which is the emergence of very localized identitarian movements across Europe, particularly like Western and Southern Europe. So I was thinking about Casa Pound in Italy. And of course, you know, the movement launches in, you know, France now over 15 years ago. And that kind of, you know, I think it exemplifies the kinds of circuits and Britt, you were using terminologies around circuits and connections that characterize, you know, the far right today where it can be both and. And some of that is enabled by the internet and, you know, the connectivity that exists. You know, I saw an article today, it was something like, U.S. far-right activists traveled to Europe. It's like, hello. I mean, this has been going on for quite a long time. And in fact, some of the most well-known U.S. white nationalists have been banned from Europe, like Greg Johnson and Jared Taylor and others from the Schengen zone and so on. So I would say rather than answer that question, I would like to leave it as a problematic for us to continue to explore. Because that's where I would say this hypernational with transnational links, far right movement broadly, that's part of its engine. And so we need to understand that. But I wouldn't want to make it static to study it. Does that make sense? So mm-hmm. that, that's how I'd address that. I hope it's not too much of a cop out, but it's how I've been thinking about it. Mm, that's really helpful. Yeah, I really like um, what you just said, Alex, and I think one issue that we've grappled with a lot is thinking about how the very ideas of insularity or of homogeneity are so deeply linked to forms of American empire, historically, and thinking about that sort of um, seemingly maybe counterintuitive relationship of how forms of whiteness get threaded through claims of insularity or of closed offness, but then simultaneously are are very much globalizing articulations, like linked to things going on elsewhere in the world into forms of American empire building. And I think thinking with those ideas together requires a kind of special leap of work. And it requires, you know, it's a whole area of scholarship that needs to be further explored and articulated to kind of track those ways that whiteness works. I wonder if I could ask a question about some of the lessons we can take from studying white supremacy, white nationalist movements 
what are some of the lessons we could take into other disciplines and other questions? Alex, you've written about the importance for them of metapolitics, which is this way that the far right have taken up, ironically have taken up ideas from people like Gramsci and taken up the cultural as a terrain of struggle as opposed to the, the political. And there's this notion that politics is quote unquote downstream from culture. I wonder, has studying white nationalist organising changed anything about your own theory of change or has it revealed anything to you about the winds of change in sort of larger political spheres? One of the things that this work, doing this work has revealed to me is the importance of having a critical and nuanced approach to thinking about temporality. In other words, time making and timescapes are incredibly important to white nationalists and to the far right. They like to write their own narratives and renditions of history, which have different signposts and different points of kind of inflection and pacing. I have learned a lot from basically reverse engineering through reading a lot of contemporary work, the white supremacist constructions of the past, mainly in the U.S., although the Holocaust in 1930s Germany and Europe is almost always invoked in some way, shape, or form. So I think that we should have more conversations about temporalities, about accelerationism, not just as kind of a, often a magnet for those on the far right, but how some of the work that is being done in, let's say, humanities fields more broadly might be actually participating in that accelerationism. Like, what does that mean? What is it doing? And I would say that one area where this is very much alive for me is thinking about environmental change, climate change. And I think we're going to see an increasing visibility of ecofascism and kind of right-wing environmentalism, which is all tied up in kind of accelerationist ideas and big cataclysmic understandings of historical patterns, eras, and epochs. In my book, I felt like the chapter on time that I wrote for me was one of the most important and interesting, although I still find it hard to translate that into really legible terms because most people aren't thinking about things like timescapes and temporalities, or maybe they are, maybe we are, and we just aren't using the right language to talk about it. But to me, that seems really important and does relate to what Kathleen was saying about being a historian of the present, because we are engaging with timescaping when we do that. And it's really good to be very cognizant of what we're doing and really responsible stewards, I guess we could say, of time as people who care about the thriving, hopefully, of a multi-ethnic America undergirded by racial justice. I mean, that would be my framing of that. Before we wrapped up, I also kind of wanted to ask each of us about our sort of personal and professional relationship to the subject. This is a thing we wrestle with. As ethnographers, it's a thing we wrestle with in a very particular sort of way because in principle, the ethic of ethnographers is to, to get close to your subject, to develop intimate understandings of them, to be able to put yourself in someone's shoes. And then uh, anthropologists have often wrestled with this question where we're writing about people we fundamentally disagree with, and it puts us in a sort of awkward position. You know, there's a there are people who've written about the sort of misanthropology of uh, writing about people you disagree with. So I, I just wonder, again, as people who identify as white, how each of you feel positioned and how it affects your methods to write about people who you disagree with. 
and so fundamentally? It's a great question. I don't, I think my approach to anthropology, genuinely speaking, is that I, and maybe this is commonplace, is that I never disagree with anyone as much as I disagree with myself. Like I more or less just constantly am struggling with any issue, any idea. And I think anthropology, generally speaking, history shares this, American studies, I'd say, as well, encourages budding scholars to, to re-examine their assumptions about just about everything so that you are never on solid ground. I do think that um, one thing that has helped me as I've written more and examined the really incredibly weird group of people known as Americans, who I've always, I've always done anthropology of people who are like me, other Americans and mostly white people, in fact, mostly white men. So thinking more critically and reflexively about not how they are wrong and how I disagree with them, but how much we share in common and how, how much unthinkingly forms of whiteness, some class similarities, some uh, gendered similarities actually framed uh, what we shared in common and made us uh, closer, uh, myself and my sort of interlocutors through a lot of the research I've done. So a lot of what I've studied that I haven't liked isn't about people that have ideas I don't like, who are bigoted, for example. It's, it's systems that I don't like that affect us both, um, including privileges that we get that, that are unearned that we don't deserve. <laughs> so I'd say like my misanthropology is mostly about those systemic problems and, and less uh, misanthropic in, in a sense. Kathleen? How do you think about your relationship to the subject and how does it make you think about methods? I think, you know, this is fundamentally different for me in Bring the War Home than it will be in my next book that has oral histories in it, right? There's a degree of remove when you have a paper archive versus when you are sitting in a room with people. And I, I don't want to minimize that difference um, in what I'm about to say. But I also think that we collectively as scholars have missed this story precisely because people across time didn't take these actors seriously on their own terms. And I don't know that I would call for full-fledged historical empathy of the kind that seeks to lessen the ideology or romanticize, as we were talking about before. To the contrary, I think that we can only understand the degree of danger posed by this movement if we take seriously that these actors had something to say about their own reasons for doing what they were doing. So I think you know, the benefit of a paper archive in, in this kind of a story is that we get to see not only what people were saying when they were giving speeches and what they were writing in their propaganda magazines, but also what they were doing. We get the record of violence. We get the record of activity. We get the social relationships. And I think from that, we get to see that, for instance, with white power women's organizing over and over again, scholars met people who were quoting the Turner Diaries to them and other white power texts. And because these women said, oh, well, I'm not an activist, or because the activism didn't look the way that a scholar expected, we just didn't get that whole part of the movement. And as a result, we were missing the bridge connecting the 80s to Oklahoma City. I mean, like the lacuna that we face when we don't understand people on their own terms is just, it's too big a risk to be sidetracked by the possible issue of overhumanizing. I also tend to think that humanizing lands us in a place of greater and not less accountability, but that is maybe my own perspective on that. So I would just add that for Josh and I, our project has been one where we're not necessarily doing ethnography with people who are attached to white power movements or white extremist movements, but 
kind of um, living in an ethnographic space of thinking about public discourse in which we are all participating. Mm-hmm. And so to me, that makes thinking about the political implications of critical empathy different. And I think one of the questions that I've been really intrigued by and, and kind of working toward with this project is thinking about how um, there are these articulations of good and bad whiteness. And I think in liberal academic spaces, sometimes a kind of good virtuous whiteness can get articulated in relation to forms of bad whiteness that aren't necessarily attached to white power, white extremism, but that kind of have a dialogue of self other. And so I'm interested in casting light back on the forms of liberal whiteness that kind of get articulated through that binary, through that construct. And I think that's one thing that I've found is an old and enduring trope across the last century that has been rearticulated in a lot of different forms. And I think it's really critical to think about that because when we just think about whiteness in that way, it's a, a binary that you know kind of just reproduces whiteness in another form and doesn't actually deal with white supremacy and forms of structural inequality. To me, I've been really interested in trying to uh, make as plain as day how everyone who is white in one form or another is implicated in what we're describing, not outside of it. Alex, do you want to finish up? Yeah, I mean, I would just add, um, I really embrace the term uh, critical empathy and agree with what's been said. And I would say that one of the things that I can do as a scholar, activist, white person is to bear witness to, you know, the contemporary moment and to do everything I can to push back against any, because whiteness has a lot of narcissism built into it, push back against that narcissism through constant critical conversations with other scholars and by infusing my scholarship with uh, critiques of race coming out of critical Black studies, coming out of Latinx studies, coming out of a range of different fields. So I think that the only way to really keep it dynamic and critical is to keep those, you know, so to speak, those kind of multiple balls in the air and then have, you know, people don't, if someone calls me out on something, that's fine. I appreciate it. We should do that with each other in the spirit of kind of collective praxis, critical collective praxis around this scholarship. That's fantastic and really, really helpful. And I so appreciate you know, the resonances and also the breadth of that last response too. I think, you know, there's a methods class we could teach about exactly this based on all four of your responses. I know everybody has other things that you might have to do today. So, <laughs> um, so I just want to wrap it up and thank you all for your time. This episode of Conversations in Anthropology was recorded and produced by David Border-Giles on the land of the Wurundjeri peoples of the Kulin Nation. We acknowledge their sovereignty and pay our respects to their elders past, present and future. The episode was edited by David, Tim and Matt. Conversations in Anthropology, the podcast as a whole, is produced by David Border-Giles, Tim Neal, Matt Barlow, Cameo Daly and Mike Lee Meher. We're supported by the Faculty of Arts and Education at Deakin University and made in partnership with the American Anthropological Association. We're on Twitter, 
at Anthro and Combo. And we're also on all the usual podcast platforms. Thank you so much for listening.